joy is possibly the most important spiritual mm-hmm. practice and commitment we can make because we are not going to make it into the promised land if we don't have uh, the joy that's going to fuel our steps. We need to taste it and we need to mm-hmm. feel it and we need to experience it because if we don't, we're going to give up. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. My guest today is Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman. Lauren was the founding rabbi of Colt Sedek, a vibrant and wonderful congregation in West Philadelphia. She established it uh, along with a group of community leaders in 2004. And she served there for 10 years before moving to New York City to become the rabbi of the SAJ. This is uh, what was historically known as the Society for the Advancement of Judaism. It was a uh, Mordecai Kaplan synagogue, the founding thinker of Reconstructionism, and is now known as Judaism that stands for all. And I'm just so pleased that you're with us here today, Lauren. I'm so excited to be here. Um, one of the reasons that I reached out to you is because we're just starting a new season of Hashivenu, and we're focusing in on community and community building and participating community as a way of cultivating resilience. This is a core principle in Jewish life and Jewish living and Jewish teaching. So much of the religious Jewish life is organized around the principle of minyan, of a of a quorum of at least 10 people who have to be present in order to engage in certain essential practices. And I think of you as a master community builder. And I think of you because I watched in awe as you grew up a congregation from from nowhere. West Philadelphia historically had a lot of Jews and in the in the post-war years, they mostly moved out to the suburbs. And you um, revitalized Jewish life in West Philadelphia and then brought many of the, the learnings and the experiences from your time there into New York. And I would just love to um, to hear some of your, uh, you know, some of what we think is most essential, some of the wisdom that you have to offer about intentionally building community. So can I ask you to um, reflect a little bit about what it's like to establish a synagogue and about Celtic? Sure. Um, thanks, Deborah. When I was in rabbinical school, I had the incredible opportunity to be exposed to the West Philadelphia community. And um, I soon came to realize that there was no active Jewish life, that if people wanted to go to um, any synagogue or not, I mean, really anything, if they wanted to participate in Jewish life, the options were to go to a synagogue either in the suburbs or in Center City, or to maybe go to Penn Hillel, which really didn't cater to to non-undergraduate students and maybe graduate students at at the most. And uh, we just saw something potentially missing in in this neighborhood and in this community. And it seemed like a great idea to try to start a Havara. So when I did that, this was pre-2004, and I started this Havara with um, two friends and then a, a couple that I had met from Beta Hava, a very small gay and lesbian synagogue in uh, Center City. And I'd met a couple that lived in West Philadelphia, and they were absolutely like, we want to build this with you. So a bunch of us got together and we started a Havara that had no obligation at all, just met once a month on a Friday. We had services. We varied rotation of leadership. We had um, potluck dinner and it was really beautiful. It was very vibrant, very fun. Um, and again, I was just 
another member of the Havra, or was a, I was probably the leader of the Havra, but with no rabbinic uh, position in particular. And about a year and a half later, we realized that people were continually coming to the Havra hungry for community. People wanted to uh, be part of something. And so I decided with uh, the support of a lot of teachers and friends that um, it would be a great opportunity while I was in rabbinical school to just try uh, starting a synagogue. You know, I had the time. I didn't have to find a job. It was it was an opportunity that landed in my lap. So I decided to give it a try. And having had experience uh, with community organizing, I um, just started by having a lot of one-on-ones and tracking of those conversations to find out what people were interested in, what kinds of things they were nervous about, um, what was kind of going on for them. And in the very beginning, um, it was really just about you know, listening and finding out what people, you know, might be interested in. And and over time that continued. And we started um, in 2004 with a Hanukkah party that launched a synagogue with about a hundred or so people. It's pretty amazing. We thought, okay. We really have, are tapping into something yeah, here. Yeah. And there was multi-generational, you know, people, there were some babies, there were older people, there were a lot of younger, young adults. And this was kind of a signal for us to continue forward. And then um, we sort of formed a steering committee and and kind of all the uh, things you need to do to sort of begin the process of starting a synagogue together. But what were some but of the really, what were some of the themes and some of the hungers that you were yeah. able to identify in the in the one on one interviews? It was really clear there was a, a number of people who really wanted to connect to community, wanted to be part of something, but had a lot of baggage about their Jewish background. Mm-hmm. Um, they had felt, and, and not everyone, but a good number of people had felt alienated from their Jewish synagogues of childhood or maybe just from their backgrounds or family backgrounds, a lot of times because of systemic oppression. So one, uh, for example, there was a, a number of LGBTQ folks who came at the beginning and said, you know, we were interested in this, but will there be a place for me? Mm-hmm. Um, people whose politics, just regular old politics, you know, sort of stances on issues, felt like their communities of origin were not um, really in alignment with their values, that they were too conservative with a small C. Mm -hmm. And then um, there was a portion of people for whom their Israel politics felt like questioning Israel at all, you know, even just in the very basic manner that I think many of us take for granted nowadays is um, was something that was not accepted mm-hmm. at their synagogue of origin. So um, what became really clear is that this congregation, which which matched my approach in general, um, needed to be a radically inclusive community, and that this needed to be a place where people could um, feel like they could show up fully as themselves and who they are, and that their voices would be heard, and that they were going to only be interested in a synagogue. Um, or, you know, a Jewish community in general that both um, made a difference in their, uh, made them feel affirmed and also that um, was connected to those really strong values. And so from the very beginning, and, and again, this was sort of a match of, of me and the and mm-hmm. what I'm hearing, um, we really centered the concept of social justice in in the in the really in the in the congregation. When so let's let's explain uh, the name uh, for our listeners called Sedek. When did, when did the name emerge? Like at what point <laughs> in the process? We had a very interesting and fun uh, democratic process for this. We and this was pre- it's so funny because the technology we take for granted 
in 2004, 2005 was still not developed. So we didn't really have Facebook, you know, I can't actually looking back, I just can't believe that I organized Cultetic without Facebook, mm-hmm, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, re- kind of pretty remarkable. Um, there wasn't, I mean, like sign up genius, you know, all these amazing technologies that we can build, com- we can use to build community today. So any case, uh, we decided to do a poll and I think we did like an online poll of some kind combined with a poll. When you came to services, there was like a little, not checkbox, but some kind of like fold down or yeah, yeah, yeah. Was like five names. Uh-huh. And, uh, and ultimately the name called Sedek, which means voice of justice was mm-hmm. chosen. And at the very beginning, when we we're like a little scrappy synagogue of maybe 40 people, I was like, what, what is, what are we going to do? Like, how, mm-hmm. how are we going to do, fill this, fulfill this name? This is really, uh, it's a great idea, but how are we going to fulfill it? So in the, in the beginning, it really meant just that what we talked about, what we learned about, what we were engaged with, you know, the values, those concepts, those ideas were centered to what it was about. And, and the commitment to um, inclusivity, the inclu- commitment to radical inclusivity was a manifestation of that, that sense of justice. I think one of the things that was always so moving to me, and this is something that was true when you were the rabbi and continues to this day, is that you were actively involved in conversions because there were so many people, there were so many people who were born Jewish who, yes. who found a home there and they, and they brought along, many times they brought along partners who weren't Jewish who found a home there. Can you speak a little bit to to the, the, what was going on there? I mean, we, I remember we wrote an article about like your the how actively involved in, in, <laughs> in conversion process you are. Oh yeah, that's great. Um, one thing I would say is just to, to caution that for one minute and just say from the very beginning, we, we affirmed interfaith families and there was, there was zero pressure in any context for anyone to convert to Judaism. I want to make sure that that's really importantly clearly stated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things that we did at the very beginning, which was at the a request of, of a family that joined one of our founding families was to start an interfaith havara that met uh, Havara being a small group within the congregation. And they, to my knowledge, they met once a month up until I was, I left. I don't think there was almost no months that they missed where people could come and talk about issues and just have fun and get to know each other and talk about if things came up, they had a group of people to talk to. So I just want to name that and state that we really um, honor and respect our interfaith households. And, um, because this was a community where people were, like you said, bringing friends and experiencing Judaism for the first time. Um, at one point, I decided to start a Judaism 101 class. And uh, and it really just that in com- combination with the kind of good work we were doing in the synagogue engendered a, a fair uh, number of conversions. I actually think that that number is up um, from what I've heard from Rabbi Ari Lev, who's now currently taking the, the post of the synagogue. But we had, you know, anywhere from six to 10 per year, which is significant for a small congregation mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, unusual for many congregations. So mm-hmm. it was um, it was an amazing, you know, experience of people really just you know, often mostly not partners, just people who wanted to come and be part of the, the community. Yeah. And so I think living in Philadelphia, I have the pleasure of seeing sometimes close up and sometimes from afar that. Thank God, called Sedex survived your departures. You know, there are sometimes <laughs> congregations that, or, or any organizations founded by, by by someone. Sometimes, sometimes the founder doesn't let go, and sometimes when the founder does let go, the organization founders. And I'm yeah. really happy to say that called Sedex continues to thrive, like with 
you know, the gorgeous roots that you planted for them and, and also in, in different directions. You made the leap to um, move to the oldest Reconstructionist congregation there is, the very first one. Um, so big, you know, from, from a startup to a really established institution at the in the heart of Jewish life. Um, yeah. So what's what is it like um, community building in a legacy organization? So, you know, it's interesting. I came to um, SAJ because SAJ was in a place where they had a very healthy foundation. Um, They had survived actually a very difficult uh, period where a lot of a huge number, a a huge amount of membership attrition based on dynamics that are beyond the scope of this podcast. But we um, had, you know, it was anyhow, it was a very... Uh, it was a, it was a congregation that had strong foundation, but needed sort of a, a, an influx of vitality and um, enthusiasm and kind of a movement towards something that could sustain them in the 21st century. Because I think uh, the, a lot of the people in the synagogue, a lot of the people who had been there for 40, 50 years, you know, SAJ is just going to continue because it's just going to continue. But we know nowadays, <laughs> whether in the Upper West Side or whether in Kansas, you know, no Jewish institution needs to survive for survival's sake anymore. We're in a different era of Judaism. People get to choose the kind of Judaism they want to be part of. They get to choose whether they want to affiliate at all. That sense of obligation is not the same as it used to be, you know, however many years ago that was. And and we weren't going to um, necessarily survive just for the sake of survival. And we had to give up that idea that mm-hmm. we could survive for the sake of survival. And we had to really intentionally build our community so that it would be um, vital, exciting, uh, joyful, you know, a, a wonderful place for people to come and to to draw from and then bring out into the the rest of their their lives and into their into their work, um, and we had to make it a place where people might choose to participate because, like you said, the competition in, in the Upper West Side is 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 it's not even really competition. It, the, the number of options mm-hmm. um, are beyond belief because beyond synagogues, which of, of which there are many lovely, wonderful synagogues, you know, really fantastic places. Um, there are also, you know, JCCs and other institutions that are serving the needs of the Jewish community. And so you really have to not just stand out, but to, to matter. So I think for me, it's been a, an amazing experience of trying to figure out what the seeds are of this community in combination with what my passions and skill sets are and to bring forward a vision um, of a joyful, justice-oriented community that can move into this next generation and can meet the needs of younger people who have very different needs than than generation two, three, or four generations ago. That's so beautiful. So how do you do that? How do you <laughs> intentionally construct joy? And uh, I mean, just, we spoke a little bit about justice from Cold Sedic. So let's imagine like that that's uh, you carried some of that over where appropriate if if we can shift over to like the focus in on the intentional construction of joy that would be so interesting well let me give you um let me give you a picture of what a saturday looks like at our congregation um not every saturday is this full but i'll give you i'll give you a little bit of a picture so on saturday mornings at 9 a.m 
a group of people come anywhere from, you know, 10 to 30 people come to do learning that's led by a lay leader. And that learning is on any topic of Jewish interest uh, that that person creates in construction. They always spend a lot of time and do excellent presentations and they get a really intellectually stimulating uh, conversation that predates my time at SAJ. Absolutely. That program. Um, and then at 10 a.m., services begin. At 10.15, Hebrew school families are starting to shuffle into the building. And then parents have the option of going to um, a class led by our rabbinic intern, going to services, going to Starbucks is also an option. That's mm-hmm. fine, too. Um, and now we're starting a few other things, like an, a running club for the parents who are going running in the park like, let's just do it together mm-hmm. so people can be in community together because it's happening anyway. So let's just do that because they have this time. And then starting at 12 o'clock once a month and other times we have other special things, the entire community comes together into the sanctuary, close to uh, 80 children usually or more, their parents, the entire regulars of the synagogue. And we do what is called a community shear, which is a community sing-along. And we just sing songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we mm-hmm. sing, you know, songs the kids are learning in class. So it's familiar to them. We sing the songs we want the parents to know. If it's a holiday coming up, we'll integrate that. And then everyone is on their feet. The people who are 80 years old are clapping their hands, ju- you know, jumping up and down, maybe not jumping up and down, but swaying their hands, you know, and, um, and they, and then at 1230, we say, the Kiddush and Motsi in the sanctuary and everyone goes on upstairs and we have lunch together. I forgot to say that we also have a pre-K program that's happening at the same time as all of this. So like zero through four-year-olds are also participating. Parents sometimes stay in the balcony to listen into services. You can listen in, but you can be with your little kids. Little kids can also be in the sanctuary. So it's just a hundred percent multi, multi-generational, multi-access point joyful, uplifting Mm. um, experience. I mean, it is just an entire day of like access points and, um, and, and, and just utter joy and connection. So I, so I have to do two things. Like one is I just have to say that um, I would think that Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, who (laughs) like famously talked about wanting to establish like a shul with a pool pool and you know that 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 the synagogue should function as as a kind of a Jewish node a Jewish community center that he yeah. you know he would be beaming upon what you just described Thank and, you know you. That, that, that means that, so much oh to my me. god i just like that the saj is, <laughs> is such a hive of activity yeah. and entry point yeah. and with and, and like you know part of the thing about this is not like you know necessarily about a, a podcast about reconstructionism but you and I are both reconstructionist trained rabbis and we talk yeah. about Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people and all of those different modalities from prayer to you know to running to education um, to the activism. I think I want to focus in on one moment and your energy was the highest, even as you were uh, incredibly <laughs> enthusiastic, as you were talking about this incredibly rich Shabbat experience, but like the energy that you brought when you talked about the community sheer. And that's just so amazing. I mean, I, I last year, or two years ago on the uh, podcast, I interviewed Rabbi Dr. Jeff Summit, who is, he's just stepped down as 40 years as the Hillel director at 
Tufts Hillel, he's also an ethnomusicologist, and we talked about the power of communal singing yeah. and what yeah. happens when you come together. So like that, that moment when our voices are joined together, like it's such a breaking down of isolation and, the, and our own individualized playlists on Spotify, like here, everybody all together. That's just so extraordinary. Um, it really, it really is my favorite time. <laughs> it's my favorite time of the month. Um, it's a beautiful thing to see people of all ages, you know, really join together and break through those barriers and um, the faces lighting up of these elders who n- didn't know if SAJ had a future, you know, mm-hmm. five or 10, you know, just didn't, just, you know, and then to have all these folks, young people, these kids, you know, they come, we don't really have a BIMA, we, it's all on the same plane, but the kids come up, they lead, they sing with me, they hold my hand, we dance together. I mean, it's just an amazing moment. And the thing I want to say about intentionally bringing joy is that, um, you know, in the world in which we're living, in this moment in which we're living, joy to me is possibly the most important spiritual mm-hmm. practice and commitment we can make because we are not going to make it um, into the promised land if we don't have uh, the joy that's going to fuel our steps. We're going to burn out, be drained, be exhausted. And we need that. We need that taste of redemption. We need that, you know, like we talk about Shabbat as one sixtieth of um, the world redeemed. And we need to taste it and we need to feel it and we need to experience it because if we don't, we're going to, we're going to give up, right. Or we're going to become cynical or we're going to feel like we don't matter. And, and, and we need that. That is what fuels us. And that is what takes us. And I think what's so significant about both cold side, I think, especially with the work I'm doing at SHJ is that, you know, we know that um, the world is painful and broken and we do not hide from it. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk mm-hmm. about it. We engage with it. We, we do social activism in a, it's a pretty profound way. We're, we're talking about how Torah connects to it. But um, we also know that if we don't fill our our hearts and our souls and our bodies with that sense of joy, we're we're not going to be able to um, do be effective agents of change in the world. I think that that's exactly right, and I think that's that's actually a huge premise of this podcast is that we can draw on Jewish wisdom, we can draw on Jewish practice to nurture us to do the work that we have to do, and that. But it's it's a bit of a balance. I I heard um this unbelievable anecdote from a colleague of ours, and I'll try to tell it in a way that doesn't like identify anyone, but he was talking about joining with a mohel to officiate at a, at a brit milah. It was a circumcision and the, with the officiant who does the actual circumcision. And the parents of this little boy, he said, do you want to talk about the sources behind the, the name? And they said, no, we want to talk about anti-Semitism. Mm. And they talked about how each of them descended from the each of the parents descended from families who had encountered persecution both in Europe and the Holocaust and and uh, one one side was from um, Morocco so from uh, post nineteen forty eight persecution and that their hope had been that this, this child would live in a world without this with this out without rising anti semitism but that's not the case and I just like I carried that story with me for 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 a week or two with so much sadness I think part of what we learned from is that a brit milah is an opportunity to celebrate so that we can then bolster ourselves, you know, and that Shabbat is a refuge 
so that we can go out into the world on the six days of creation to do the repair work that we have to do. And sometimes it's on Shabbos as well, but that we have to privilege the joy so that the suffering doesn't overtake us. Yeah, it's a really powerful story. And I think that it goes back to the point you've been making about community, because the, the other part of this is like, we can feel joyous on our own, right? We can yeah. have a moment of joy and that's good. That's a good thing. We should, God willing, be able to cultivate that in our lives. Right. But when we come together, we realize we're not alone and we realize that right. we are way more powerful than our individual selves. We can be, you know, and I, and I, I, I want to think that piece about antisemitism is so important, but it's so important in this era also to be mindful about, you know, how antisemitism is being played to keep us away from other communities. Yeah. Um, and manip- manipulated so that Jews are afraid and are isolated. And that is so dangerous, both for our literal safety as a community and also for our psyche. Yeah. We must be continually reaching out to those other marginalized communities, other people affected by white supremacy and you know racism, um, because we're all in the same boat. And yes, we are going to also have to stand up to anti-Semitism that occurs in every pocket, you know, not just on the right and but it's really important that we do it in community, both our strengthening our own Jewish community and also strengthening our interfaith community, because that that is a critical component, I think, of of being in this world in this moment and 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 being resilient. Yeah. And I think actually I mean, I think I'm going to wind us down. But is there a core teaching that you have that kind of summarizes like, a, 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 you know, singing and an and intentional joy? Um, so I often look to the song of the sea and the moments coming up before and going through the sea as an inspiration for me personally. And I, as something I think about a lot. And one of the things that I, I, I think is so amazing is, you know, how we have so many multiple interpretations in our, in our tradition and we can kind of find meaning in those interpretations. So there's a question in about from our ancestors about whether the Israelites crossed the sea uh, when when they crossed the sea, did they sing the song of the sea? Did they sing the song of redemption after they got to the end of the sea, after their journey, or during the process itself? And some commentators say it was actually during the walk, on the way. Mm-hmm. And that has so much resonance for me. We cannot save up our songs and our joy and our triumphs for just when we've arrived. We must, must, must sing on the way and find that strength and find that hope and find that faith um, as we cultivate, as we journey along. Mm. I want to raise up that community share again, because that's also a place, you know, of um, in, in interfaith gatherings where even if our liturgical practices might be different or, our, you know, our, our, our Shabbat observance might be different, like that we can, we really can just genuinely join our voices together, you know. And, and, and so I know that when I've been in multi-faith gatherings, like sometimes it's when we, we find something to sing together that... You know, you just you hear that the, the 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 sound is so loud, and you're both, um, you know, we're both amplified, but also lost in the best possible way within it. And um, oh, Lauren, what a rich conversation! Thank you so much. It's such a a, a joy to be doing this work with you and to be learning from you. Um, and you know, to to watch Coltsetic continue to flourish and to watch Saj you know, gain more and more energy and, and more and more um, uh, vision for, for how, how to be relevant and how to be uh, transformative in, in people's lives at this moment in time. Um, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. A great pleasure. So I want to thank uh, my guest, Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman, for our wonderful conversation on community building, and we'll add uh, resources to a lot of the things we've links to both SAJ and Cold Sedic, and some of the other um, things that we've discussed over the course of this uh, conversation onto our website. You can find that at hashivenu.fireside.fm. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu, Adonai.